Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness, your goodness, your mercy, and your grace towards us. Father, we thank you for so much that you have been teaching us in the past few weeks and months in Revelation. Father, we thank you for making us aware that uh, Satan is is at work. Uh, Satan has been defeated on the cross, and he knows that his final defeat will definitely come when Christ returns. But we know, Father, that Satan is out to attack believers. He attacks us by persecutions and oppositions, bringing fear into our lives. He attacks us by seduction, uh, bringing us away from that which truly satisfies. So, Father, we ask that your spirit be at work in us uh, this morning, that you open our eyes to have a vision of that which you have prepared for us, that nothing compares to it. For those who believe in you and those who have been chased by the blood of the Lamb, and there will be those who will endure patiently to the very end, and will be those who reject uh, that which Satan offers. All for your glory, Rod. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Christians, uh, many here today, we believe that one day, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again, he will come back. He will return. Here in Smack, we affirm that every week in the Apostles' Creed. What would you say if you were asked, do you look forward to the return of Jesus? Do you long for his return? For some, if not many, of the believers here this morning, this is a very heavy-hearted and real question. And the answer would be an astounding yes. Yes, come, Lord Jesus, come. How long, O Lord? Others might not have thought much about it recently. And I think the two broad reasons for our lack of longings are these. Firstly, we don't see how bad the present condition really is, both the condition of the world and the condition of ourselves. Secondly, we don't see how good that which awaits us is when Christ returns. They are both two sides of the same coins. When we understand one, we understand the other. Today in Revelation 21, God seeks to help us with our second weakness. God wants to show us that which awaits Christian. God is saying, my children, this is how it will all play out in the end for you who are in Christ. This is what your future holds. This is how it will look like. So let's go through the passage together and allow God to work in us accordingly. We'll pick up along the way seven things that we will know about this life to come. Why seven? It didn't come from Revelation. But since we are preaching from Revelation, why not make it seven? All right? This is the life that God has prepared for his people. So let's begin with verse one, if you turn with me. 21 verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Borrowing from Isaiah 65 and 66, John makes the point here that there will be a complete transformation of all things. 
heaven and earth, that is the entire cosmos. It's ethical, it's physical, it's spiritual, moral, everything will be completely transformed. They will all be renewed comprehensively. That's the point here. But let's think about it. If we were to ask ourselves, how messed up do you think is our world? What's your answer? I mean, how messed up is it? Which aspects of our world do you think needs restoration? Our oceans, our atmosphere, our land, our outer space, our floras and our faunas, our morals, our ethics, our politics, our bodies, which parts? When Jesus returns, it says here, every single aspect of the present cosmos will be renewed. No stones will be left unturned. Do we see our world as fallen and corrupted, in need of renewal as God sees it? And he says there that there will be no more sea. What does that mean? We've seen the sea so far in Revelation. We've seen it in chapter 13. That's where the beast came out from, the sea. And in Isaiah 57, the wicked were compared to the tossing of the sea. So the point here is that there will be no more evil in the world to come. Can you imagine such a place? Think of the safest place that you have ever visited in your life so far. The safest ever. It might be another country. It might be another village. Was it completely evil-free? Completely evil-free? Well, this one is going to be completely evil-free. Verse 2, it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. The new heaven and new earth is now portrayed here in the form of a city, the new Jerusalem. Isaiah 62 talks about Israel getting a new name, and that signifies an intimate new relationship Israel will share with God. So here John is painting a picture to show that the relationship Christians will share with God in the future, it's intimate. It's an intimate relationship that Christians will share with God. The city is a symbol of Christ's bride. That's the church. It is not a city of bricks and mortar, but a city of people. People redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we'll see a lot more of the city in the verse to come. So we'll come back to that. But for now, you know that the city is a symbol of the church, people of God. Now, take note of a very important point that we see in this verse. Do you notice where the city is coming from? The city is coming down out of heaven from God. Well, why is that important? It is saying the perfect church, the perfect future, it comes from God. It is Him who prepared it. It is made possible only by Him, God. Let's think about it. Throughout the ages, we humans have seeked to create the perfect world, haven't we? Today, we have UN, we have EU, we have G8, G20, we have NATO, we have UNESCO, we have ASEAN, we have Oslo Accord, we have Kyoto Protocol, we have Montreal Protocol, we have Olympics, we have Miss Universe, many, many more. 
many, many more. We tried many, many ways. Many ways, interna international efforts to bring peace and recovery. But looking at the papers, and not just the papers, looking at the world itself, this week itself, the world speaks for itself. Revelations makes it very clear that a perfect world will not come from man. It has to come from outside of man. It has to come from a transcendent God, which is beyond man. Wherever that we are pinning our hope for a good and perfect and a peaceful world today, if it is not on God, it will bound to disappoint. If it has not yet. Fallen men simply do not have the ability to create a perfect world. And that's very comforting, isn't it? To know that the perfect world doesn't come from you or me. If it has come from me, you regret it. It's going to be full of IKEA shelves and labels everywhere. <laughs> you wouldn't want that. Thank God today that city comes from God. It's going to be perfect. It's not going to be biased. Yeah. Verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, this expect of life to come, that the dwelling place of God is with man, if you are using the boxes, fill this up right in the border box, right in the center that the dwelling place of God is with man. This expect of the future. This is a central expect of the future where all other expects radiates from. The dwelling here conveys two ideas. It is the very presence of God and the glory of God. So what is John saying here in Revelation? He's saying that God in his glorious presence will be dwelling with his people permanently in the age to come. We see here a picture of intimacy. He will dwell with them and there will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, at the heart of the life to come, the principal characteristic of this life is this the glorious presence of God and the fellowship that believers will share with him. Now, did that surprise you? Or did that surprise you unpleasantly, perhaps? Because, well, that is the highlight of our future, that God is dwelling in our midst, that's it. Well, if you are unpleasantly surprised, that's probably because you have not seen the depth of destructions man have brought and continue to bring upon ourselves and upon this world when we push God out of our lives. The extent of the hurt and pain and damage that we have caused when we try to run lives our own ways without God. In the life to come, God sits exactly where he should be, right in our midst, because we, his people, need him to be there. Our loving creator, our Lord, will be there. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from your eyes 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. John goes on to outline the benefits or consequences of having God dwelling eternally in our midst. The crippling effect of sins, first of all, is abolished forever. We see that there is no more death, so as a result there is no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more crying and pain. Because the former things have passed away. Life as we know it now, in a fallen world, will be replaced by the new order completely. But the saying goes, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Have you heard that? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I think we live in a corrupted world that has trained us to be skeptical, to be wary of hoax emails and con men, to be skeptical about the news and about basically everything. In the life that awaits believers, there will be no more death or mourning or pain. Does that sound too good to be true for you? It does to me sometimes, I must admit. (laughs) The thing about internet is that it exposes and it confronts us, isn't it? With the extent of the brokenness of our world, you simply can't hide and pretend for a moment that our world is well. You're just bombarded left, right, and center all the time that there's something wrong with this world. And I get overwhelmed by the multitude of simultaneous horrendous news that comes my way. I look around my own life, and I look around the world. I look at history of what has happened throughout human history, and I doubt and I question, how could a perfect world ever be possible? Really? Well, it is as if God anticipated such a response, and he said this to us in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That is, God is saying, these words are trustworthy and true. What is there not to believe? If you, yes, you have not seen it yet, due to, that's due to your time-bound creatureliness. But when I, God, of all things, say it is done, it is done. This restored future is locked in it will turn out exactly the way that God says that it will. No need to put any disclaimer at the, at the bottom that says it depends on market and currency fluctuations. No, it will definitely happen. I'm the transcendent God. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Whatever I say happens. I say, let there be light, there was light. I say, my son will die and rise. He will conquer sin and defeat death. He died and he rose. And I say to you now, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life. Without payment, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. 
it will happen. Those who patiently endure, who do not deny their faith, who hold fast to Christ, who did not soil their garments, they will inherit all the blessings of this new age. Each and every individual, you realize, he moves from corporate way of speaking to individual, my son. Each and every individual one of them will be God's son. And that's the blessings for believers. But in contrast, take a look at verse 8. In contrast, verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters and all liars, the portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 8 leaves no room for universalism, which says that at the end of the day, all will be saved. Verse 8 clearly says, very clearly, that not everyone will be there in this perfect world that was painted for us. For the world to be perfect, evil must be purged. Those who persist in rejecting God who doesn't want him to be in their midst, won't be in their midst, won't be in his midst. Friends, if you are someone here today who do not want God or Christ in your life, that is exactly what you will get for eternity. You will not enjoy intimate relationship with your maker and your savior, who will wipe every tear from your eye but you will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur without God, just as you want it. But in Christ, we have salvation. In Christ, Christians are those who are clothed with his righteousness. We are not good by in of ourselves, but Christ died for our sins. And by faith, you can too enter that place of eternity. Next, from verse 9 to verse 27, we see John going into details to elaborate for us the characteristics of this city, this city that God dwells. So take a look at verse 9. We'll begin there. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bows, full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. Again, we see here an intimate picture. The people of God is the precious bride, pure and lovely without stains or sins, completely pure. And they are described as the wife of the Lamb. That is, they share a lasting, intimate relationship of mutual love and trust with Him. And notice John's deliberate use of the word Lamb to speak of Jesus. Instead of saying Jesus, he says lamb. In these few chapters, or within this chapter, you see the word lamb, the lamb, occurring seven times. Very high frequency in Revelation. Why? I think it's just to remind us that this perfect salvation, this perfect place that God is preparing for us, was accomplished through the blood of the lamb. It's not a human creation. It's not by human efforts. It's by the lamb, the slain lamb, that we get this. 
Verse 10, let's see more about the city. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Again here, we are reminded that eternal blessedness is not of human achievement. It is a gift from the transcendent God coming out of heaven from God. Verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Here we start to have visual descriptions of the city. It is filled with brightness and brilliance of the glory of God. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his name. Day after day, night after night, they give him praise. As Christians, many of us can identify the psalmist. Once in a while, when I finally stop and observe creation, the clouds in the sky, especially after the haze, we see the moon and we see the stars, we see the Milky Way, we cannot but be amazed by what God has made. We see the glory of God reflected in creation. But on the reverse, when we look around us again at our societies, at our cities, at each other, how much of God's glory do they reflect? To whom and what is glory and honor and praise given to instead? And that's painful, isn't it, when you see that? Things are made in the image of God. Things are made by God. His creation is being worshipped as creation and not creator and not reflecting the glory of the creator. But that, not that way in the life to come. In the life to come, God's presence and glory will be clearly manifested everywhere throughout the whole city. In his creation, in his people, everywhere. Verse 12. Verse 12 says, It had a great high wall, and with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Well, the, the great high walls here give a strong sense of security, of security. Absolutely unpenetrable, completely safe place. On one hand, the Christian church today, like you and me, is already, is already having a taste of such security. Those who are persecuted in Smyrna and Pergamum that we saw in Revelation, they knew that they are spiritually completely secure in Christ who conquered there for them. So they did not fear the one who can destroy their body and not their soul. They know that they are completely secure. In the life to come, there is no fear in all aspects of life, not just spiritually. Spiritually, physically, we will be completely safe. For all the enemies and all the evil will be completely destroyed. Again, can you imagine that? It's hard too, isn't it? No more car locks, no more immobilizers, no more grills, no more pipe locks, no more irritating alarms. 
No more annoying passwords which I cannot remember. No more boom gates. No more papal spray. No more safety helmets. No more German Shepherd. I'll need to think twice about that one. <laughs> Maybe German Shepherd will still be there, but will not be barking for security reasons. <laughs> All right? And definitely no more stranger danger. No more. No such concept. It is mind blowing when you think about it. Just how much mankind had invented over the years to protect ourselves because the world is unsafe from the cursed, harsh physical world and even more from one another. In the life to come, God's people will enjoy utterly absolute security. No more fear. Next, we see that there are a lot of gates around. You can't, you can't miss that, isn't it? Gates. At first glance, they may seem to symbolize security as well, just like the war, but the war has done that. And we shall see later that the gates were actually opened by day and by night, never shut. Now, in Ezekiel 48, we, saw, we see there 12 gates of the New Jerusalem. And all the gates are the gates through which the tribes will go out to the allotted land. But here in Revelation, we see in later verses 24 and 27, that these gates are entrances for people of the earth whose names are written in the book of life to come in. Now, what does that mean? I think here we have a picture of abundant access. People of all nations, of all tribes and languages, who took shelter in the slain lamb, have access into the, this perfect world that God is preparing. The 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles represent all the people of God, that is all of his elect, will be there. Not a single one of God's elect will be left out. Those that he began a good work, he will bring to completion and the slain lamb ensure their entrance. Verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 statia, its length and width and height, are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also angel's measurement. Well, the detailed measurement of the city here serves to portray the enormous size of the city and the perfect symmetry of the city. This eternal dwelling place for believers. The city lies four square. That is, it's a perfect cube. It's a direct reference to 1 King 6, describing the Holy of Holies. 1 King 6, you can take a look at that. It describes the inner sanctuary of the temple in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. That is a place of God's presence. So the vision is making this point, that the future city is a place where God takes up his residence, where God dwells with his people again. How about 12,000? Well, 12,000 is 12 times the cube of 10. 12 is the number of Israel, of God's people that we know. And a cube of 10 symbolizes perfection. So 12,000, again, presses the point that there is a completeness of God's people 
who will be gathered there. No believers will be left out. Every single one, including those who have gone ahead of us, who have died in Christ, will be there. We can be sure of it. Every single believer will be there and we'll see them face to face again. And the same goes with 144, 12 by 12, symbolizing God's people. All will be there. The big idea here is that Jerusalem is so vast, so perfectly crafted, that it accommodates every single believer for eternity. Verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold with clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, and the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, and the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Here we see the overall picture of a beautiful and a splendid and a city of great worth. Jasper and pure gold. In Revelation 4.3, we saw that the one who sits upon the throne is like the jasper. Earlier in chapter 21, we saw that the city shines with God's glory like the jasper. So here again, the vision makes the point that God's glorious presence is so much part of this city that even the walls speaks of that. It's everywhere. And pure gold signifies a complete absence of impurity. Not even a single bit of sin or any evil can be found there. And the walls were adorned with every kind of jewel. I can't pronounce all of them. But these precious jewels or stones correspond with the gems that we read of in the breastplate of the high priest in Exodus 28. If you refer to that, Exodus 28 talks about the high priest with a breastplate with these stones on it. And it implies that in the age to come, all believers will enjoy the privileged access to God that only high priests had in the Old Covenant. So we keep seeing an intimate relationship between God and His people, people who have access to God, all of us. Every one of God's people will live freely in God's presence. The street of the city was pure gold. Under the Old Covenant, only the priests can walk on pure gold in the temple. But here in the age to come, all believers can walk freely in the presence of the glorious God. The overall vibe is not to be missed here. It is that this new city is so magnificent that it is beyond descriptions. If you have done enough cross-referencing diligently here, looking up every single cross-reference, every single time John borrows an image from Isaiah and from Ezekiel, this is what you will sense you sense that John is struggling here, struggling to describe the city. I mean, think about it. How would you describe snow to someone who always lives in the desert? 
How do you depict the color blue to someone who has been born blind? Similarly, how can you sufficiently use earthly images and language to describe the age to come? And that is why in Revelation, John has been using God-provided images. God-provided images through the history of Israel to help us understand what awaits us. But even with that, here in Revelation, we can see that it is still limited. John is struggling to express by symbols the sheer vastness and perfection and splendor of the age to come. It is simply beyond descriptions. It is like Malaysians trying to say, this is the bestest, gustest, optimistest roti chana in town. <laughs> it goes beyond the boundary of language to describe how good it is. And that seems to be what's happening here in John. Verse 22, we see. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There is no temple in the city. John has been borrowing heaps of images from Ezekiel throughout, but here he is kind of supersedes Ezekiel. Ezekiel spent seven chapters talking about the restored temple, but here there is no temple. Why? For its temple, it says, 22, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There is no need for any special, special sacred place in the city because the whole city itself is one big holy of holies where God dwells, the whole place. Apostle Paul taught us that believing congregation is in fact the temple of, the holy, temple of, the, of God. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? That is, all of you are God's temple. God's Holy Spirit dwells in you. 2 Corinthians 6, he says, We are the temple of the living God. As God say, I will make my dwelling place among you. Ephesians 2, he says, In Christ, you are also being built together in a dwelling place, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All that is pointing towards the final state of affair where the Lord God, the Lamb, the Almighty, dwells with his people in their presence. The age to come is basically church for eternity. If that worries you, don't worry. It is the perfected church for eternity. It is the perfected church for eternity. There will be no more sin in each one of us. It will be perfect. And God is there. There will be no more fear. But it's basically church for eternity. And that's heaven. Verse 23. And the city has no need for of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, its light. And its lamb is the lamp. By its light... Will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more nights there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Again, the same point has been made. The heavenly city is illuminated by the glory of God. Why? Because God the Lamb and the Lamb is there. This time, John is borrowing images from Isaiah 60. 
And in verse 27, perhaps, just in case the image of the open gates, never shut by day or by night, and the kings of the earth come flowing in, gave the wrong impression that it is free for all, that it is absolutely free for all people, John makes it clear in verse 27. He says, But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will be there. There is entry requirement. Nothing wicked and deceitful will be there. Only people with names written in the Lamb's book of life will enter. Those who stick to the slain Lamb and clothe this in righteousness to the very end. Let's take a look at the last verses. Verse 1 to verse 5 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of life, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The river of the water of life, the tree of life, and its fruit, there is no longer anything accursed. What does all that remind you of? Anything? It's not the Javu. We've read it. It's the Garden of Eden, isn't it? We read it in the Old Testament passage. Right in the beginning, in Genesis, the first book, very first book of the Bible, Adam and Eve and God lived together in the garden. God walked in their midst in the cool of the day. Can you imagine that? But Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they were banished out of the garden because they sinned. They were banished out of the garden to work the ground cursed with thorns and thistles. Now in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the first and the last, we see the redeemed community in the garden city where God dwells. Once again, they have access to the tree of life. Once again, God's curse is removed. There is no more sin. They see God's face face to face. In 1 John chapter 3, it says this. It speaks of the transformation that will take place when Christ returns. And he puts it this way. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. The transformation that you and I as believers experience is already happening and we know it. That will be brought to completion when Christ returns. His name will be written on the foreheads. We will be his and we will be like him. Completely sinless. Let me draw to a close now. 
Well, can such a perfect future really be true? Can such a perfect garden city be possible? Many will ask, how can this be? Isn't it? How can this be? But friends, why should we be surprised? Why should we be surprised that it can be? How can it be that creator is in creation? He was. How can it be that the Lord of Lords is hung on a tree? He was. How can it be that the light of lights died on a cross? He did. How can it be that he rose from the dead? How can all this be? No one would have imagined or guessed that it can be. But it was. It all came to pass. Friends, our path as Christians from outside the garden, Eden to the garden city, is possible because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords went through the garden of Gethsemane for us. Though full of dread and fearful of anguish, he drank the bitter cup that was reserved for us. And that makes it possible for us to enter the garden city, the perfect place. Let me end with 1 Corinthians 2, which says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But He has prepared that for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. And we thank you for what you have prepared for us who are clothed in Christ. Father, we thank you that your word speaks warmly and closely to those of us who find these present worst things, things of sin and evil and decay and meaninglessness, and it comforts and reminds us of the better place that is to come. We thank you that your word also speaks to us who find this world satisfying, who pin our hopes on things of this world. We ask, Father, that by your spirit, through your word, you work in our minds and our hearts to meditate on this vision that you have given to us, that we may be blown away once again by what you have achieved for us on the cross. By your spirit, you will please help us to be those who patiently endure oppositions and persecutions. By your spirit, you will help us to be those who persistently reject the seductions of this world. We thank you, Lord, for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.